Today's episode is all about flight and fight, the sympathetic autonomic nervous system. Welcome to episode three of the Polyvagal Podcast. So I know I warn you about this every time, but I really want you to put yourself first. And I think the last two episodes have been pretty safe. Um, and I haven't been too concerned about people being triggered into um, going down the polyvagal ladder, having their traumas come up um, specifically. I think I've been pretty delicate about that stuff, and I still will be. But um, now that we're talking about flight and fight, it's more likely that something will pop up for you. So I want you to be just really please, please, please put yourself first. Um, listen to this when you're ready. Be in a safe environment where you know you can handle it. And again, I'm I, super sensitive to this stuff. I'm not. I don't mention anything graphic whatsoever. There's no. It's not needed. Um, but you know, just by the nature of it, please make sure you're in a good spot. Um, this is potentially triggering, right? So I did the best that I could to keep it safe and to not go into unnecessary details. It passes my inspection, but I don't know your window of tolerance. Um, by the way, I'll talk about the window of tolerance in a future episode. Um, I do have a request for you this week, which is to please um, scran- scran- well, screenshot <clears throat> screenshot, and share you, uh, you know, the, the, on, this, on your phone. If you're listening to it on your phone, just do a simple screenshot and post it to Instagram or Twitter or wherever you like. But let people know you're listening to it. And if you're finding value in it, that would be tremendous. That's my one request of you for this week. Our topic is flight and fight. Um, I, I wanted to cover freeze, but I think that flight and fight are probably going to be enough. This is pretty heavy stuff. Um, it's pretty dense information, but I think, I think we can do it in a fun way. So the way I'm going to start this off is once I get my notes up here, sorry. (laughs) Again, we're doing this in one take, almost completely unedited. Last time I did it in one take and I was pretty happy with it. I did do some editing, which I'm not proud of, but I don't mind it either. So today we're talking about flight and fight. This is the so flight and fight. This is the sympathetic nervous system. Um, I, from what I understand, it evolved along with bony fish, who had to swim quickly. They couldn't just shut down. They had to actually swim quickly to get away from predators, um, or to actually probably catch their prey as well. So bony fish evolved the sympathetic nervous system of flight and fight. So the biology of flight and fight. The body is, what's happening here is the body is being mobilized. Oh, by the way, if you haven't listened to the prior two episodes, please do. This builds directly upon the prior two episodes. The last one was about safety, um, and it really kind of touched upon some of the stuff we're going to talk about today. And the one before that was more of a general introduction to the polyvagal theory, but I highly recommend that you listen to both of those. People seem to be really enjoying it. There's been a good response, uh, much better than I thought it would be this far in, so that's great. Anyhow. So the body's being mobilized. Um, the biology of what's happening during flight and fight, some key things, the heart rate speeds up. Uh, so blood pressure is increasing. Blood is being pumped more quickly throughout the body. Cortisol and adrenaline increase. Uh, muscle tension. So uh, yeah, your muscles are tensing up because our limbs are now going to be used for getting away or for being aggressive. There is an increase in metabolism. Our pupils dilate. We start sweating. This is all about survival. Now, on a smaller scale, this is true for any type of movement, actually. Even when you breathe in, now not to this level, but even when you breathe in, it's something called heart rate variability. When you breathe in, your sympathetic nervous system kicks in. So your heart rate actually increases a little bit. And then when you breathe out, your heart rate decreases. That's called heart rate variability. So you breathe in, your sympathetic nervous system actually kicks in. When you breathe out, your parasympathetic nervous system kicks in and you're able to Uh, calm back down. So just a little bit, even when you breathe in and out. But pretty much everything you do is going to, any sort of movement, I think, is going to kick in the uh, the sympathetic nervous system on some level. If you've ever been cut off by a BMW getting off on March Lane, which many of us have, um, you know that your arms and legs do the work for you. You don't stop and think about a response. Your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and does the work for you. Your arms simply steer the wheel. You don't think about where to steer it and is it safe here and there. Hopefully, I mean, you know, ideally you have the time to do that, but um, you, you know, you've been in those situations where 
you don't have the time to think about the best course of action. And so your body just does it. And uh, for all of us who have been cut off by the BMW on March Lane, many of us, um, you know what I'm talking about. Think about a time when you've been really scared, not traumatized, when you've been scared like someone screams, you know, and, and they scare you like to have fun, right? Your muscles tense, your heart rate increases in preparation to run away or fight, right? Um, teachers, I'm sure you've seen kids in class getting angry at each other. What do they do? They tense up, they square up, their hands go into a fist, their eyes are wide, their, fa- their face shows anger or is kind of flat, um, but I think at that point when you're ready to fight, it's more of an anger face. But, you know, that that's because they're, they're gearing up. They're getting ready to utilize their limbs for fighting. This state of being more, on a mo- being more mobilized, this state of flight and fight, is ideal for short bursts of sympathetic energy discharge. Short bursts. So, like, fights in particular are typically pretty fast. They don't go on like in movies. They, uh, they last very, they're not very long. Um, I've watched a couple of like self-defense videos on YouTube, uh, people who are trying to teach you how to defend yourself, just out of curiosity. And um, repeatedly, they they say, you know, streets street fights, they're over in like 30 seconds, if, if that. It's it's like a big burst of energy, and then people kind of, that, that's it. Uh, running away from danger is, or should be a, a pretty quick process. You run away, you get safe, and th- that's it. That's 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 what the body is preparing to do. But you, you can probably already start to see that if someone is stuck in a state of flight and fight, you can probably start to see that there's, there's some problems there. If, 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 these, if this system is designed for short bursts and someone's stuck in it, um, that's obviously going to have a, an impact on their general health and well-being. It's going to have a, a higher tax on their body. This is all about survival mode. Um, flight and fight is all about survival mode. Our pain tolerance increases to help with running or fighting. We are better able to scan the environment to find danger. Uh, breathing becomes shorter and faster. This is to increase the heart rate and stay mobilized. And um, a faster rate of speaking since we're in So it, people who are in more fight or flight mode, they will speak in shorter bursts and faster because they are um, taking shorter breaths. So even me right now, I'm kind of speaking pretty quickly and taking little bursts of breath because I'm more into the flight fight mode. It doesn't mean I'm actually in danger. It just means, you know, like when you give a presentation or you're, you know, you're aware you're being recorded and then, you know, people are going to listen to it. Uh, you know, you kind of drop down the polyvagal aisle a little bit, all right? Don't judge me. So it's all about survival. Again, it's all about survival. It's a natural response. In this state, we are better equipped to survive an external threat. This is about an external threat, not really an internal threat. Right now, I have zero threats around me. You know, no one's attacking me. There's no tigers here. Um, I'm safe. But knowing that I'm recording my voice and people are going to listen to it, um, lots of, you know, self-doubt creeps in, imposter syndrome, that kind of stuff, that can trigger this flight flight or fight mode um, a little bit. You know, I'm mobilized enough. Right now, you can't see me, but I'm moving my hands like crazy. So this is this is all about an external threat, but our bodies as human beings, we also respond to our internal judgments or judgments from other people that we internalize. Um, it's not we've we've taken it to the next level where it's also about internal threats. So even though your life or safety may not be in actual danger, the bodily again the bodily perception of danger can trigger this response. We've talked about the bodily perception, the neuroception, is more important and overrides the actual level of safety or danger. We are better able to scan for danger in this mode, but we see it more often. We see danger where there's not danger. Um, think about people that overreact to getting like the wrong meal in a fast food, fast food place or you know the wrong kind of milk in their Starbucks. Um, if, if you're in safe and social mode, it's not a big deal. And honestly, you know, you might have some empathy for the workers because they don't get paid a whole lot, and we, I, we don't expect perfection out of them. That's that's silly. But in, if you're more in flight and fight mode, or if you more easily go down the polyvagal ladder to flight and fight mode, we, you kind of take it as a personal insult, or we're blaming them and we're judging them, the workers. It's uh, we begin to attack, like we're in kind of like attack mode, where we're you know like this person's you know blankety blank, we're blaming. Um, they're worthless. We're judging them. 
that that's not safe in social mode. That's flight and fight mode coming through. Even though, so basically, if if someone is more prone to going into fight and fight mode, flight and fight mode, um, those those basic um, interactions through the day that are meaningless or aren't negative be, become interpreted as negative. In survival mode, also our breathing is is constricted by the chest and neck muscles tensing, and so our breath will feel. A little bit more pressure on it. It'll be short. That's why our breath is shorter, is because our chest and our neck muscles are tensing up. Again, in preparation to uh, fight, we have moved down the polyvagal ladder. We are no longer in safe and social mode. We are not. So let me, let me clear up something here before I move on. Actually, it's flight and then fight. That's the order. It's not. You don't. Some people. It's not like you choose. This is a natural biological reaction. We run first when there's danger. We run first. And if we can't escape, then we fight. Um, I, now, when I see other people talk about these, those two are grouped together. Flight and fight mode get grouped together because they're both sympathetic arousal. But when an actual danger, like if you're going to get mugged, your first impulse is to flee. Now, some people who have lived in a lifestyle that is prone to like constant danger they can, and, and and who have a judgment about fleeing, like if, if fleeing is judged by the community as being um, a show of like weakness, basically, we can definitely override. We can, we can override our bodily instincts to flee. Um, we, can, we can override those things. So some people, even though they have the instinct to flee, may not. Or they, they may even perceive that there is not an option to flee, even though there is. If you live in an environment where there's you know gangs and uh, gunshots consistently, there's no fleeing from that. It's, it's kind of always there. So you may exist in fight mode, um, and so that so you're not really skipping fleeing. You're just already in fight mode. But basically, I, and I believe Doctor Porter said this in one of his lectures is that it's it's safety first, flight second, fight third, and then um, shutdown fourth. So, and that's what I've seen in my clients. And when we talk about situations that are scary for them, we can we can pinpoint you couldn't be in a safe and social situation. So you drop down to flight mode. You attempted that. That didn't work. We drop down to fight mode. That didn't work. And then we drop down to shutdown mode. So I believe that's the correct order. I don't, it's not an option. It's, it's I, and then this is something I've seen from, like from my clients is that it, they don't choose. It's not an option. It's safety, flight, fight and then shut down. So that's what I'm going based off of here. I see lots of people grouping them together as if they're equal. And I, I even went to a presentation where someone put fight mode ahead of flight mode. I don't think it works that way. The first thing that we'd want to do in danger is to create distance between ourselves and other people because other people are now a threat. Or in, in like in a mugging, you know there's a threat. You want to create distance, right? Um, but if we're stuck in flight mode, we generally create distance between ourselves and other people because now... Now we're perceiving danger everywhere. So, you know, everyone's now potentially danger. And so we kind of uh, pull off um, and back off from people and give more space. Uh, the facial cues, as we move down the ladder, our facial cues are changing. And how we process facial cues changes as well. So we're no longer identifying or giving safe facial social cues. We are now, so we're, our face pretty much goes flat. You know, think about right now, if, if there was some sort of sound outside that indicated danger, right? Think about what, what you would do. Your face goes flat, your eyes go wide, and your head turns toward the sound, right? That's what we're talking about. That's the first sort of step, I think, is... And the same thing with, like, deer who hear, like, a twig snap. They all... Their head snaps toward the sound of the of the of the danger, potential danger. Their eyes go wide, or they sort of sit still and wait. So as we move down the ladder, our facial cues kind of go flat, our eyes go wider, and we're basically looking for danger. Um, and that what we're also not able to identify neutral faces as safe. Now we see neutral faces as flat because if, if, if a neutral face is not giving us safe and social cues, this is a potential danger. But if we see safe and social cues, we may miss them. They're harder to interpret. But those safe and social cues can definitely help us pull back up the the um, 
the polyvagal ladder, especially if you have more experiences of being in a safe and social state, you can easily go back up the ladder. Many people have not had, have not built that resiliency of being able to tolerate going from safe and social down to flight um, or mobilization, basically, and then back up. So some people may get triggered and stay down there for quite a while. It takes a while for them to come back up. But um, anyhow, so no longer identifying or giving um, safe facial social cues. We are now identifying neutral faces faces as a threat. Our hearing changes, our middle ear muscles uh, turn off to better hear deep sounds or high sounds. Um, deep sounds of like a growl, of an avalanche, of you know things in nature that sound deep that evolved within us to sort of tune into. And high sounds as well um, that we're going to pick up on easier. So why would we want to uh, be attuned to higher pitch noises in danger mode because if one of our mammalian uh, friends is in danger, they will scream. Basically, they'll, they'll let out a very high pitch noise. So that's going to be a cue to us as to where danger is and where to avoid. Maybe maybe help out, but um, but basically we'll know where danger is. It's so we're we're tuned to high pitch voices as well or high pitch sounds. And we have a harder time to understand the sound and the meaning of human voice. Um, so it, let me let me go into a couple of these a little bit more. Neutral is now threatening. Okay, let's move back up to the safe. To, I'm sorry, the facial cues. Neutral is now threatening. Um, I've heard a couple of clients in session where my you know I have to be really aware of how my face the, the cues that I'm giving off. And sometimes as I'm listening, my face can kind of go flat because I'm, I'm really sort of tuned in and I may be mirroring their polyvagal state. And so maybe I'm going flat and I can feel my anxiety rising in a safe way and I can tolerate it. But that's a clue as to kind of for me as to where they're, what they're feeling. It's not my own anxiety. It's more like I'm in touch with what they're feeling. So if my face goes flat, they will tell me, you're looking at me like I'm crazy. No, I'm not. I'm not looking at them looking crazy, like they're crazy. Um, in fact, my face isn't doing a whole lot at all, but that's the point is that if they're talking about something sensitive, um, and they see me not giving them a clear reaction, their interpretation, remember story follows state, their interpretation is you're looking at me like I'm crazy. And I've heard that a couple of times. And so I'll snap out of it and say, Oh no, no, you know, definitely not. I have you know, no, no judgment towards you whatsoever. I'm just listening. I'm, I'm doing the best I can to listen. Um, there was a, there was a client I was meeting with who, um, when he learned the death of his father, which was, um, the father was killed. The client remembers the family members in the room when, when they told him that they were staring and that that's what he, he remembers clearly about the situation is that the family members were staring. And he told me in session, they were staring at me. He said they were judging me and that I wasn't reacting the right way and that they were judging me. Now, I have no idea if that was a reality or not, but I, I did find it interesting that he remembers the stare. And the family members were probably in shock as well and didn't know how to handle the situation and perhaps even wanted to help but didn't know how to help. And if my client didn't have an obvious reaction of sadness that may have confused them, who, like we don't know. But in that moment, my client was going through danger mode. Um, dad, They just got news that dad had been killed. Um, so they remember their body dropping down, way down, and people staring. It's it's the neutral face that was that really stuck with him. Um, and if you've worked with teenagers, you know that when they get a blank stare, that's a severe. They can have a severe reaction to that. That blank stare can mean anything. And if they're in flight and fight mode, that blank stare means uh, threat. Hearing human voice, so sarcasm does not go well with someone who's not in the safe autonomic nervous system. If they've dropped down to flight and fight, sarcasm does not go super well um, because usually it's pretty monotone and neutral sounding. Uh, sarcasm is usually delivered kind of monotone and neutral. And being delivered in monotone and neutral or like a monotone flat voice, that's a cue of danger that our, our bodies will pick that up as danger. Remember we talked last time about prosody and having a sing-songy voice. When you use sarcasm, you don't use that really. And our and since our ears are now attuned 
to danger, to sounds of danger, that flat, monotone sarcasm doesn't go over very well. Plus, you know, interpreting the humor in the comment is now lost as well because we're now in danger mode. So utilizing humor can be kind of tricky in this mode for, for people on the receiving end of it. So the kids in your classroom who are chronically in a danger state, they are more attuned to hear anything else besides the human voice. They are literally incapable of hearing your full range of voice and your intention. Now, they can hear you. They hear you. For the most part, they can hear you. And if they, you know, they, they can um, come up the ladder and hear you better, of course. But there's kids in the class that aren't hearing you and are completely checked out and are really in a dangerous state and they're not picking up anything at all. But there are other kids who hear the words but don't, they can't interpret it. They, they, they lose the meaning of what you're attempting to say. Um, or you, you remember, like if, if we drop down the ladder, we lose access to our cognitive functions, a lot of them, like problem solving, um, collaboration, stuff like that. Um, we've lost access to that. So you know, kids come into your classroom and they are no longer, they're in danger mode. They're no longer accessing those cognitive functions that come along with safe and social mode. So really, even if they do hear you, the words, they've lost some ability to interpret and understand and collaborate and all that stuff. Um, same, same with uh, us, you know, parents and spouses. Um, our, our spouses, our kids, if they drop down, they're, or if we use the, the wrong tone of voice and cause them to drop down, they're not going to be hearing our intention and they're going to be interpreting things as danger. Um, so if, if your voice drops, if your voice drops to like a, a deep monotone and a, as male, if you have more of a, um, a voice on the male side of things, then you like you have to be aware of that. Um, you have to be aware of that and that kids, not just kids, anybody, that that, that alone is a cue of danger. And if someone is in that, that could potentially be a small trigger down the polyvagal ladder. Now, most kids can tolerate it, or adults or whoever can tolerate this, and it's a non-issue. But for those kids and adults who don't have that resiliency of being able to tolerate these little cues, this could send them down the ladder or keep them down the ladder. So, you know, as for you know, teachers, when your voice drops to a deep monotone, like when a kid's in trouble, they're going to pick that up, and it's going to reinforce danger mode. It's going to reinforce it or send them down to it. I saw a kid, oh man, I saw a kid after class or after school who was, I don't know what she was doing, but a staff person said, I'll make up a name here, um, Maria pops in my mind. The staff person says, Maria, come here, right? And the, the deep monotone voice of Maria, come here. And Maria looked at her, the staff person, wide eyes, flat affect, obviously in danger mode. And the staff person says, you're not in danger. But she said it like that. You're not in danger, or not in trouble. You're not in trouble. Come over here. So all the cue, even though the words were, you're not in trouble, all of the cues were trouble, danger. And Maria walked over to her and um, her <laughs> poor poor kid, her, her affect didn't change whatsoever. So I, I didn't hear the rest of the conversation. Hopefully it worked out well. But her body was completely in danger mode and was like, oh my God, what did I do? You know? The issue here is obviously when this is a chronic problem with people who aren't safe, aren't giving safe cues um, like kids in an abusive home. Kids in an abusive home are not receiving safe social cues generally, or if they are, it may be in an um, abusive context, so there's like mixed signals going on. So obviously, yeah, this is an issue with people who have a chronic who have developed a chronic state of flight and fight. And it's not their fault. I don't blame them. That's how our nervous systems respond. So there's no going up the ladder in these situations, and the danger response becomes the norm. And this includes all the negative consequences that come with being in a mobilized state, in a flight and fight state, as your norm. Remember the ACEs study that says, or that proves the more, and I know there's limitations to ACEs, but but the more uh, abuse that you've survived, at least in what they studied, the surveyed, the more abuse that you survive, there's more correlation with 
actual somatic, like actual physical issues um, later on in life, plus suicide, plus mental health issues, but actual illness um, like fibromyalgia and uh, diabetes, I think, and all that kind of stuff. So being stuck in these modes, which is, I mean, just honestly kind of upsets me. It's very sad that kids who are born into certain environments who don't choose to, obviously don't choose to be born in this environment and have no say over the matter that the way they're parented or what they go through is in large part going to dictate the state of their nervous system, which they're going to bring to school. And, you know, if they're in danger mode or flight mode, they're not going to be able to um, listen as well or retain or be a part of a group or make good behavioral choices. Um, so that that's super sad, I and mean, they'll get in trouble at school, bring that home, get in trouble at home, and they have no say over the matter. They don't have, um, they didn't choose that. But so what what happens here is that with ACEs, that the body is no longer optimized for health and growth and restoration. If you grow up in an environment where you have to be in flight or fight mode, you're no longer using your resources, your oxygen, and whatnot. You're not you're not using that stuff for health and growth and restoration. Now you're using that for danger mode. And that's supposed to be an acute, um, intensive, momentary thing, not an ongoing mode, not an ongoing state for the body to be in. So it's supposed to be acute. Sympathetic energy is supposed to be released in a burst of running or fighting. People that come from abusive homes aren't getting the relief of discharging the sympathetic activation, the sympathetic energy, the flight and fight energy. So like when I... I share when I was a kid, like seven or eight, in the neighborhood there was a dog and I just ran. My, my body was the, probably the fastest I had ever run at that point. Um, I don't know if I was in actual danger, but I ran. I got home, got to safety. But the running was, it allowed me to release the sympathetic energy. And I got to safety. I was with my family again in a safe environment behind a closed door. The dog was gone, right? So I, I was able to release, in a short burst, I was able to release that sympathetic energy. And if you come from an abusive environment, you don't have the luxury of being able to release the energy. It's always there um, it could, because the abuse is always there. So I want you to think about that moment when you got, like so when someone scares you on purpose out of fun, but they scare you, your heart rate goes way up in order to mobilize, to run or to fight, well to run, and if you can't run, then to fight. But there was an immediate increase in sympathetic activity and adrenaline, right? You can like when you, someone scares you, you feel that immediate increase. But again, this is an acute reaction that you can probably immediately calm once you realize who scared you, and realize that they're laughing and they're smiling and they're giving you those safe social cues. You can come back up the polyvagal ladder. It's a very acute reaction, and you can shake it off and move on from that pretty easily. And knowing the person that scares you. That helps you with trust, like it helps you come back up the ladder and seeing them laugh and smile <laughs> at your expense. But still, those uh, those laughs and smiles are polyvagal cues of safety. So you can come out of that state. It's a very, very acute state, but I think it's like a nice little snapshot of, of um, even though it's pretty intense, a snapshot of flight and fight uh, bodily reaction. So our daily experience of being in this mobilized flight and fight state there's a lot of similarity here. In flight mode, you're more panicky. Anxiety is a common feeling, symptom. Um, fear, dread, being on guard, being hypervigilant, foot tapping, picking your nails, um, all those like little nervous habits. That's more of like a flight mode, I think. So flight mode feels like anxiety. Your bodily state is, there's sympathetic energy, but the way you experience it is anxiety, Fear, dread, panic, uh, hypervigilance, stuff like that. People that tap their foot, like they're trying, their body is trying to release that sympathetic energy. And I know when I did this presentation, um, when this topic came up, as I continued to talk about this, people started tapping their legs. I also noticed during presentations like about trauma that people, their bodies start to mobilize as things get a little bit more touchy, you know, a little bit more um, difficult to listen to, that their bodies start to mobilize because they want it. Their body is picking up on danger just from the topic itself. So that's flight mode. Fight mode, you're going to experience, again, now it's sympathetic energy, 
but we're not able to run away, so now we're in a fight mode. The you're going to experience this, this as anger or rage, or irritation or aggression. Um, your muscles are tense. Your fists may clench. Teeth uh, gritted. Um, in fight mode, you actually may be closing in proximity as well. I think if you can't perceive that you're running, and this is just my conjecture, I'm not totally sure about this, but based on working with kids, when they get in fight mode, they kind of get close together. They're ready to fight. Um, if, you, if they perceive they can't escape a situation, they will come in closer. So for both of these modes, though, flight and fight, you have, for the most part, flat affect. You may be giving anger cues with your eyebrows, um, but flat affect is pretty common for both of these. Wide eyes, being distracted, sitting upright or forward, uh, shallow breathing, breathing into your shoulders, your chest, not hearing safe people. Sensing danger everywhere, speaking faster and louder, having an increased heart rate. This is very common for both of these states. Let's talk about avoiding eye contact. This is very common for these modes. It kind of goes along with it. But something I see in therapy and I'm, I'm, I've been noticing a lot is, uh, lacking, is, is avoiding, not just not making eye contact, but avoiding eye contact. So what I do in therapy is I provide a chair that's at an angle. Um, that way they have a visual escape that they don't feel like they are, are they have to list, um, sorry, they have to make eye contact with me that they have an avenue where they can look forward and um, away from my own eye gaze. And I'm also pretty sensitive about mine and um, knowing when to look, when to look away, um, stuff like that. And that's still something I'm learning, but Anyhow, so I, I give them an angle to view away from me, but also the angle is easy enough to look over at me and make eye contact as well. And I will notice as, as they move up the polyvagal ladder in therapy that the eye, eye contact does increase until it gets to this moment where we're really holding it, like a gentle eye contact together, smiling, laughing, sharing conversation, and uh, utilizing more cognitive skills. And once they get up to that point in therapy that... Problem solving becomes a lot easier. They get to a point where they can say, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. And I guess I did do this thing that caused that. And those those thoughts sort of spontaneous, spontaneously come in once they've reached this moment of being in a safe and social mode with me. And one of the clues of that is also being able to hold eye contact. Um, there are kids that I've worked with, and I've worked with overwhelmingly kids um, in my 11 years here. Kids and teenagers, sorry. Um, that Especially teens that work with me, when they get to that point of sharing eye contacts, for some of them I can tell it's a brand new experience and that they're really experiencing it, that they're making eye contact with me and they're really experiencing it almost for the first time. It really feels like it. And a couple of my notes the first time where they've been able to hold eye contact with someone in a safe way. And you can tell they're just really relishing it and just really noticing it like this is different and experiencing that, that safe and social mode. And it's, it's a really beautiful moment to be a part of on my end. Anyhow, let me get back on track here. So uh, an angle, a, chair, a chair that's at an angle, uh, think about teachers, how are your chairs placed in a classroom? Um, group seating is becoming more common, I think. Um, I don't think it's super widespread, but I'm seeing it here and there in classrooms. But think, now, there's nothing wrong with that. But for some kids, this is a neuroception of danger because it's unavoidable eye contact. It's a situation where they are forced to sit in, this, in small groups um, and they're forced to sit right? And they don't have a clear avenue to avoid eye contact and they don't have the space that they need away from other people. Cause now if, if you're, if they're in flight mode, other people are a danger. So sitting close to them is a cue, a reinforcer of the danger. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's for the most part, kids can tolerate sitting in groups, but just to be aware that you may have a kid in your room who is flight or fight and that sitting in these Seating arrangements for them can be quite challenging. For but again, for most kids, it's fine. Uh, but for specifically for a trauma survivor or somebody who's going through ongoing abuse or ongoing trauma at home, that we're keeping them down the polyvagal ladder. But likewise, traditional seating. I feel really sorry for teachers because there's no clear, perfect answer here. But likewise, traditional seating might put someone behind you that you can't see, and this could also be a neuroception of danger. I'm sure that I know teachers are clever enough to think of something. I don't have a perfect idea for this. 
but I'm willing to explore this in the future. But um, but yeah, someone sitting behind you that you can't see, that you don't know what they're doing, if you hear laughter behind you, you're going to interpret that as, that's about me. If you're in flight mode, that's about me. If you're in danger mode, that's about me, and I want to kick your butt. So there's no perfect answer that I see. I'll have to do more research on that. But just to be aware of it, at least for now, teachers, okay? People that are... People that are down the ladder in flight and fight mode seem to prefer a seat where they can scan the room safely, like in a corner. That might be the best option if you can do that. Um, people, they like to scan the room, always check in for safety, um, and have some space. Or to have maybe a spot, I've heard of teachers doing this where they have a spot in the room where a kid can go to, to avoid, to kind of have like their own, or teenager, to have their own, uh, when I say kid, I mean teenager as well. A spot in the room where they can go for like space, downtime, or whatever, and it's a clearly marked spot in the in the room. It can't just be a spot for like that one kid. Like here's your spot, go over there. But more like, hey, this is for all of us. Um, if you need some time just to sit by yourself for whatever, this is the spot in the room for that. Um, I've seen that happen. And it seems to like it could help. But again, I'll, I'll need to look more into that. Let's talk about the daily experience, okay? These common behaviors are not described in the DSM, but these are part of many DSM diagnoses. And this is kind of the stuff we went over, but let's, let's go over it again. Flat affect is super common in many, many diagnoses. Wide eyes or like a sort of, you know, like the dead face, wide eye, not dead face, but flat, flat affect, wide eyes, not using the facial muscles, not using the muscles around the eyes, super common. I see this. With many kids, no matter their diagnoses or history. Shallow breathing, super common. Not being attuned to human voice, super common. Not sharing eye contact. Increased heart rate. Increased rate of speech or significantly decreased rate of speech, which is more of freeze mode. We'll talk about that next time. All of these are super common in many, many diagnoses. So the presence of these and other behaviors in different diagnoses suggests that there might be a common cause, which I think, and what, what Dr. Porges kind of lays out, the common cause is a shift in the autonomic nervous system into, at least for right now, into sympathetic arousal. That this is the underlying factor in like ADHD or um, anxiety disorders. We've gone down the polyvagal ladder. So we're now in sympathetic, sympathetic arousal. And that's why we see these symptoms occur in different diagnoses. This would fundamentally, so now if I think if we recognize these more, this is a sidebar here, this would fundamentally change how we diagnose, in my opinion. I would love to spend more time on that idea in the future, and I think I will. But just for now, I'll leave, I'll leave that with you, okay? The nervous system is use-dependent. It adapts based on the needs of survival. Being in a state of flight or fight can become chronic, like we talked about, and if this happens, we can become a danger. We can become dangerous to ourselves or others. So the let me go. You know, go into this a little bit more. The nervous system is use dependent, meaning it adapts based on the needs of survival. This then becomes the way of being, and the way that the world is filtered. So the state that we're in is not is also how we experience and filter the world, and our internal world. Kids will learn that they need to be in the danger state to get their needs met. If that's how they get their needs met. Things like screaming, crying, threatening. As they drop down the ladder, their anxious or aggressive behaviors will escalate. So parents respond to this by giving in or arguing back. Both of which can easily become a cycle. But now we're reinforcing the state. Parents need to be attuned to their kids' needs. And I'll go into parenting in a future episode a lot. Parents need to be attuned to their kids needs before they drop down the polyvagal ladder i don't expect parents to be perfect i'm not a perfect parent um, i don't expect anyone to be able to read minds but there are cute like for a baby there's cues that a baby will give before it cries before it needs to feed uh, when it's tired it'll tell us before it gets to the point of like all out crying um, kids do better with structure you know older kids do better with structured time and routines so keeping these things in mind, looking for those little cues from babies, my wife and I got really good at noticing, you know, mouth movements and uh, just those cues of like um, what their eyes were doing, like those cues of like what they needed in the moment to avoid the full out meltdown. Or, but basically you look for the cues 
they're communicating these what they need. If you're attuned to it, we can avoid the um, them dropping down the polyvagal ladder. Basically, that's that's the idea here. Older kids do better with structured time and routine. Knowing this and utilizing this can help prevent them from dropping down the polyvagal ladder. I know when my three-year-old gets too tired, he becomes. <laughs> I'll re- I'll remove my judgment there. When my kid drops down the polyvagal ladder, uh, he can be. I don't know how to put this gently. Uh, he kind of becomes a little brat. I don't blame him. He's dropped down the ladder. I wasn't attuned to it. Uh, but, you know, he cries more often. He whines. He's more demanding. But if I look for those cues or and or stick to a structure, those things don't pop up. He takes a nap. He wakes up. He feels better. It's really a non-issue um, with a lot of this stuff. And, it, you know, the kids that I've worked with in therapy, the kids and teens... This is this this um, being attuned to cues that the kids give, or being holding to a structure that they that they need. This is severely lacking with a lot of the families I've worked with. Severe. Not. I'm not saying. I don't know your family. I know you're thinking. Hey, well, that, that doesn't apply to me. Fine. But based on my experience with kids in therapy, family therapy, working with parents for 11 years now in parenting groups, these things are severely lacking. And when they're lacking, your kids will drop down the polyvagal ladder. And then you're going to respond in some way, and that's going to reinforce it. It might reinforce it. If you give in, that's definitely going to reinforce it. Um, so that's just, you know, be aware of it, all right? Parents need to basically be like a safe and social, as much as possible. We have to be in our safe and social state as much as possible. It's not easy, not always easy, but the more you practice it, the more you're aware of it, the easier it gets. And so we have to kind of be an anchor for the kiddos that drop down the polyvagal ladder. We have to stay in our safe and social mode. And really be an anchor for them to pull them back into safe and social mode by providing safe and social cues, giving structure, listening to the cues that they're giving us before it becomes too too big of a problem, stuff like that. This can be, I'm sorry, this is why being, the nervous system being use dependent, you know, kids that learn they have to be in like danger mode to get their needs met. This is how they can become dangerous with sympathetic nervous system chronically kind of activating. There's more because there's more chronic avoidance or aggressive behaviors. These these behaviors are going to pop up more often, and this can really become a danger to themselves or other people. Um, I've worked with well, many kids involved in uh, gangs, and these are sadly kiddos that are kind of stuck in flight or fight, usually fight. But I know uh, I, they kind of go through both. But um, this becomes very chronic. And it, it takes a big toll on their schooling, I think on their physical health, um, their relationships. It, it takes a big toll because they're stuck in this sympathetic activation of flight or fight, usually fight with those kids, sadly. So coming out of danger mode is absolutely possible, but it requires safely discharging the energy. And so, so, so things like move, movements, like a sprint, but it needs to be done in a safe environment with a safe person. Um, moving from danger to safety can can feel like danger because you're not used to it. So let me go back here, actually. So movement like a sprint, uh, safely discharging the energy, um, simulating like running. You can make a game out of this with kids. Um, you, I think it's really important that this stuff like this is done with a, a, per, a safe person in a safe place. I think in a future episode, I'll go into specifics onto what this kind of look like. But just for now, I think it's important to know, yeah, it's possible to come out of this state. Because um, I, th- I think this is a whole episode unto itself. It is possible to come out of the state. It does require utilizing or discharging the energy physically. But I also, well, yeah, physically. And a lot of that might be shaking and trembling. Like It doesn't, have, it doesn't mean you have to run around the block. But it, shaking and trembling, there, there is a natural response that we human beings just like... Uh, animals have to shake off this energy like we still have it we don't i don't think we listen to it but it's, it's definitely there and i see it you know when you, when you tap your leg i think that's what's happening is you're attempting to shake off some energy um but yeah with kids you know making a game out of it can is a safe way to do it with a safe person but i think it's really important that no matter how this looks that we're mindful of the experience like kids move around constantly kids with diagnosed with adhd are always moving around, right? But they're not mindful of what their body's doing. Their body's just sort of doing it. So I don't think that it actually discharges any energy. But I think that there's a benefit to being mindful of what your body's doing 
and in combination with um, some sort of physical discharge. And that could be like dancing, it could be running, it could, it, it could be so many things. But really kind of bringing awareness to the body as the energy is discharged, um, I think it's a big piece of this. Uh, that's, that's for fight mode. In, I'm sorry, for fl- that was flight mode. In fight mode, you it's not it doesn't seem to be a leg thing. It seems to be more of an upper body arm thing, like pushing against a wall is a great, I think, a good way to discharge energy. Pushing against your own hands, like uh, just pushing into into each other, um, and really being mindful of it. And this seems to be helping in session with certain kids that are in this sort of uh, fight mode. That when they do that and then release and allow their body to relax, that it, it really sort of helps them come up the ladder. But again, bringing awareness to it and how it feels. And I think these exercises like pushing into your arms or, um, yeah, that that's something super easy that can be done, I think, in class. Um, I think there's easy things that can be done in class, even in schools. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll save, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll save that for a future episode. I just, it's just too much. But that's something that I've uh, actively been trying to brainstorm and research and come up with because I work with the kids in schools. So anyhow, so moving from safety to danger, let's say you're able to discharge or begin the process of discharging. That can feel like danger. It's scary to go up to safety mode if you're not used to it. It feels very uncomfortable and vulnerable. I see this in therapy all the time where a kid will be going up to safety mode and all of a sudden they their their mind takes them to a problem like all of a sudden it's we're back to the thing we just talked about even though we had kind of reached some sort of resolution about it or a new thing pops in their mind but i can i can track them and they're all of a sudden they're like we're almost there we're making eye contact and then a second later it's oh but you know my mom did this thing and it really upset me the way that i interpret that now is that holding on to that safety mode is quite a challenge um and it's, it's it's a scary experience if you're not used to it so what I'll ask that my my clients to do is I'll say you know we we were we were at this point and then all of a sudden this thought popped in your mind is it okay if we go back to that safety mode if we kind of can we go back a step and just sort of notice how it feels and and they're fine with that and we, it brings awareness to what happened at least um, in the moment so yeah it can feel like it can feel very dangerous and bring you right back down the polyvagal ladder. Let me share with you an example of flight mode and then an example of fight mode. And then we'll do a couple of musical samples um, to kind of paint the picture a little bit better here before we wrap up. So this was a real life example where my kids were in the backseat. I'm driving the car, pulling into my neighborhood. Um, My son screams. He's three years old. He's in a booster seat or a car seat. Absolutely screams out of terror. Now, I drop down the ladder into sympathetic activity, right? Which which to me at first felt like irritation. And the narrative that pops into my head is that my daughter is bugging him, which is a safe bet. <laughs> but this time it wasn't. So then she screams. And she screams, spider, spider. <laughs> so my son's in his car seat, remember, screaming, trying to, and I couldn't see him, but I know he's trying to back away from the spider, but he's in a car seat. He can't back away. And my daughter's screaming. My heart rate goes way up. Now I know what the problem is. And I'm opening the car door. I'm moving as fast as I can. To, I've, I've parked. I'm opening up my car door. My new narrative is that it's a huge spider. And I'm going to have to punch it. I, I seriously had this image in my head of having to punch the spider. My fists were ready to punch a spider. Don't ask me why. Um, but that's just the story that I had in my head, okay? Story follows state, okay? But I was very mo- this was very much like a fight mode visualization, I think. So I was kind of in fight mode. My daughter was in flight mode. My son, I think, was in flight mode still, I think. He's yelling for help. I think he was in flight mode. So I open the door, and a mosquito eater flies out. Those, like, gross, gangly things. I think it's called a mosquito eater. So it flies out. Everyone's safe. Son calms down. I gave him some safe social cues. You know, gave him a little hug. I should have taken him out of the car seat. I didn't. I should have taken him out and given him a hug and let him discharge the energy, but I didn't. Um, but my daughter requests, she says, can I get out and walk home? So she intuitively, intuitively knew that her body needed to release the sympathetic energy. She didn't have to run, but she knew that walking home and being outside and not being stuck in the car was how she needed to do that. So and we were only a block away from home. So I'm like, yeah, sure, of course. And I, I knew what she was doing. I knew what her body needed. 
Um, and I said, yeah, of course. Yeah, walk home. I'll see you there. And yeah, so my son and I drive home. I let him out. We get in the house and I help him shake off the sympathetic energy by doing like a funny dance. Um, and while we're doing it, I say, man, that, that's, that mosquito we were, was scary, wasn't it? So I brought his awareness to what happened and while we're shaking off the energy and doing some like wiggles and stuff like that. And just a very brief conversation about it. And he was, he called it a skeeto. Uh, he didn't call it a mosquito eater. He says skeeto. Yeah. Skeeto. And he was saying, yeah, it was scary. And I was scared. And you know, while we're doing it, while he's talking, he's like shaking it off and he was fine. After that, I think he went and played with some cars on the floor by himself. Um, he was fine. You know, he, he got what he needed to shook off the energy. My daughter came home, talked about her briefly. Oh man, that was so scary. And we talked about how she saw her brother freaking out. And she talked about kind of what happened in her mind at first. Like I thought he was doing this or that just a very brief process of what happened. And she was fine. We, we moved on. It wasn't a traumatic event, but it did absolutely kick in each of our sympathetic activities. Um, once the thing flew out of the car, I, I felt myself like relaxed. I kind of wanted to laugh. I think that, that was my body's way of, get, of releasing the sympathetic, sympathetic energy was to kind of laugh it off and realign my breathing. I think laughter has a lot to do with that, but I haven't developed that idea further. I'll have to look into that. Um, but yeah, so we each released our sympathetic energy in a safe way and we were fine. No trauma there. All right, here's an example of fight. Um, I was at a school walking down a corridor. Oops, sorry, I lost my notes there. Okay, walking down a corridor, and I hear yelling between uh, two students, a boy and a girl. Lots of swearing, lots of threats being thrown about. Um, raised voices, deeper voices, wide eyes, clenched muscles. They were in very close proximity, basically like face-to-face. The girl was being more aggressive. She was a little bit bigger than the boy. So I got in between them, which you should not do. Don't do that. Luckily, but I did. Um, because that's, I don't know, it's just where I, where I went. Don't do that. Don't get in between kids fighting. But I did that. I'm bigger. I'm a staff person. So I kind of used that to my advantage. Um, and I thought I could get away with it. That's not how I'm trained to do it. Don't do it that way ever, okay? But anyhow, I focused on the girl as there was a teacher who was trying to kind of corral the boy. So I was focusing on the girl. I made wide eye contact with her and I kind of met her in this sympathetic state. But I was also in a safe and social state. I was, I'm able to tolerate that. I can tolerate being down the ladder while also being in a... I can mix the two states and that's totally possible. We all can do it, but I, I feel very comfortable doing that. So I made wide eye contact with her and I asked her a few times if she was okay. So I'm kind of meeting her where she's at with this intensity, but also saying, hey, are you okay? Um, I gave her some safe social cues as well. But she told me what the boy was doing, so she started to talk. She told me what the boy was doing, and that, and she also told me what she was going to do to him. But I pretty much ignored that. I focused on whether or not she was okay. I made sure my eyes were locked under hers. I gave some safe cues like crinkling my eyes, smiling when I could, um, and really just kind of deflecting all of her anger and saying, like, I, I get that. I, yeah, I understand where you're at. Man, I'm really worried about you, though. And that seemed to help out enough. So she was able to control herself enough, but she had a lot of sympathetic energy build up. The, the fight mode kind of alleviated, and I, I felt like we were up into flight mode because you have to kind of go up the ladder, you have, and you have to release the energy. So what I did was I took her, I said, hey, is it okay if we take a little walk? We, we, we walked up and down the corridor, and I knew she still had a lot of energy within her. It didn't solve the problem, but she did tell me she was safe enough and that she could be in class. So we... <laughs> So I got there, right? We got back to the classroom. The boy had been removed by the teacher who then asked me to watch the class. And this scared the heck out of me because I'm a therapist. I'm not a teacher. I don't want to be a teacher. I don't want your job. <laughs> I do not envy teachers. I am terrified of being a teacher. But I said, okay, so I said, how long is it going to be? He said, just a minute. So I'm like, all right, fine. What am I going to do? So I couldn't say no. So she sat down. I walk into the classroom and I read the room, right? Everybody was down the polyvagal ladder because it started in the classroom. Everybody was down the ladder. All, you know, 30 of those kids, whatever it was, everybody was in mobilization mode. Most of them were sitting down but were anxious. You could feel it. You could feel it in the room. And so I, I asked everyone to sit down and asked what happened. Actually, I kind of commanded it. Um, I, I needed everyone to sit down. What's going on, right? Everybody answered all at once. Everybody kind of just blah, 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 answered all at once, right? So I asked everyone to take a deep breath 
in and out, which I led them through. Just take a deep breath. I need everyone to take a deep breath right now. Like take a deep breath, blow it out slowly, right? And that seemed to help out. You could really feel, and a lot of sighs came out, and a lot of kids just kind of went, <sighs> but they took this huge gasp of air, which I think is the most efficient way when you're sympathetically charged to kind of get to, to get this huge gasp of air using your shoulders and really kind of like pulling upward. Um, it's not an efficient way of getting and staying in. You, you breathe like that in a sympathetic state. So you don't want to stay there, but it's a great way when you're in a sympathetic state to get a lot of oxygen is that big gasp of air. Anyhow, they took a deep breath, let it out, and you could feel the tone of the room come down, right? The teacher came back in. Luckily, he was telling the truth. He came back in pretty much right away. <laughs> um. But, you know, if, if I had asked them to take a, a belly breath while they were sympathetically charged, that wouldn't have gone very far. Um, so I, I just said, hey, take a deep breath and let it out. And that was enough to bring the tone of the room down. And I picked on a couple of kids like, hey, what happened? And they spoke up for the class. Or I, or I said, hey, what actually what I said was, hey, what happened? And I, I noticed a couple of the kids were the loudest or the couple of the kids spoke for everyone. So I focused on them. And I said, okay, well, tell me about it. Then the teacher walked in. Um his demeanor was calm. He was in a safe mode. He was he was irritated, a little bit luxury, but he he was a safe teacher. I could tell the kids had some buy-in with him, so that was it. All worked out well. I went on my way, and that was that. Anyhow, so that's a couple examples: flight mode, fight mode. Let me play for you um, a couple of pieces of music, and what I want you to do is to notice how your body feels as we listen to these music. The first one, and I'll, I'll tell you right away, it's, it's um, if you don't like heavy metal, you're not going to like this. I'll play just a little bit, not a lot, just a little bit, just to give you the idea. I promise it'll be over soon. <laughs> but this one, um, I want you, how does your body, listen with your body, not with your ears. I want you to listen with your body, not with your ears, okay? And I want you to notice, how does your body feel as you listen to this? It's over. I told you to be brief. So, how did your body feel? You probably noticed that there was a there was picking up. It was getting more intense. Um, so, let's make this real simple. Did your body feel more like bopping, like up and down, or like forward, or like swaying back and forth? It was probably more of a bop, right? Some of you might be full on headbanging right now. I'm with you. I'm there. I love this this kind of stuff. Um, sometimes it's just I don't know. It's just what I need. So, this is from Baby Metal. It's called Gimme Chocolate. This band is an absolute trip if you ever listen to them, which you probably aren't unless you're into this stuff. Um, because the lead singer, at least at this time, was like, I think she was like a 16-year-old girl. So it has this extremely high-pitched voice along with this very deep metal music. It's quite a combination. Anyhow, so you probably felt more of a bop or maybe a, a revulsion. <laughs> so you may have wanted to back away from that in flight mode. Or maybe you join me more in like a fight mode, drop down the ladder, and you want a headbang. So that's... Baby metal, gimme chocolate. Now let's relieve the sympathetic activation. Let's listen to this one. Is it more of a bop or more of a sway for you? This magic moment So different and so new Was like any other Until I kiss you And then it happened It took me by surprise All right, so that's got to be more of a sway, right? No one's bopping to that. No, eh, maybe a little bit bop, but that's a sway. That's a smooth, melodic. The voice just carries us and keeps us safe. Um, the background music has some level of intensity to it, but the voice, the human voice, which we can attune to, keeps us in a very safe place. Um, that, that was Benny King, by the way. I'm sure you knew that already, dear listener. Benny King, this magic moment. So I'm going to leave you with Benny King there. Actually, I'll leave you with my outro music, which I think is more in the safe state. I hope it is for you. Um, I hope this episode brought you some value. 
if you have a question about anything or if you feel like I got something wrong, I'm open to hearing that. I'd love to hear from you um, and possibly address it in a future episode. So feel free to contact me on Twitter and Instagram now. I've been using Instagram more. It's JustinLMFT. You can go to my website, JustinLMFT.com, or you can email me, JustinLMFT at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening to episode three. I'll be back next Tuesday with episode four. We'll go way deep into shutdown mode. Thanks a lot.